Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the third installment in SDS's 2021 webinar series. This series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. The topic for today's session is to date or cannulate ECMO strategies during COVID-19. We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may utilize the chat feature and enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderator for this session, Dr. Awari Hayenga. Dr. Hayenga is an associate professor in cardiothoracic surgery and is the ECMO director at West Virginia University. He has cared for a large number of patients with COVID-19 in a program that is one of the highest survival rates in the US. He has been involved in COVID-related health policy and vaccination efforts at state and national levels. Dr. Hayenga, let me turn it over to you to introduce our digital moderator and panelists. Thank you very much, Michelle. Welcome to the SDS webinar on COVID-19, in which we will highlight the role, indications for, and nuances in the application of ECMO. My name is Awari Hayanga from West Virginia University, and tonight we promise a spirited and fast-paced discussion, which will be predicated on time-limited responses and a compendium of erudite, albeit not necessarily unified, opinions. I am joined by my esteemed digital moderator, Dr. Rakesh Arora from Manitoba, Canada. Dr. Arora will serve as the digital moderator and we will be monitoring the chat for questions and fielding them in real time. We intend to cover plenty of ground, but also encourage you to send those through the chat and we will pose them to our esteemed panel. We have an illustrious panel of surgeons and intensivists, each of whom serves in a director role in an ECMO program or in the front line in the capacity in this pandemic. From Johns Hopkins, we have Dr. Bo Kim. From Baylor, we have Dr. Shuba Chatterjee. From the University of Michigan, Dr. Jonathan Haft. From Methodist in Omaha, Dr. Merritt. And from Yale, Dr. Rita Miluski. Each panelist will take the mic for 90 second opening statements. We have received over 40 questions in the four, past 48 hours and we will rally to give each one its due mention. Let us jump straight in to the right ventricle and COVID. Dr. Haft, now you wear many hats, including prominent roles at the University of Michigan and at ELSO. Now there are many theories about the optimal cannulation strategy in COVID-19, but none has aroused as much controversy as the use of the ProTech Duo. Indeed, as you have recently referenced on a separate media platform, this is the VPA alternative. Now, what do you say about this approach, which is opposed by many? Is it really ready for prime time? Uh, thank you very much, Awari, and thank you to the SDS leadership for the privilege of being here. So the ProTech Duo is, is a very provocative approach uh, to the treatment of patients with respiratory failure. The ProTech Duo cannula was really designed uh, to provide a percutaneous, less invasive uh, form of a right ventricular assist device. In fact, uh, there have been numerous publications 
uh, on the use of this device as a right ventricular assist device, uh, short-term following implantation of a durable left ventricular assist device. The concept is that this uh, double lumen cannula is advanced uh, from the right internal, uh, internal jugular vein uh, through the tricuspid valve, through the pulmonary valve with the tip sitting within the pulmonary artery. The drainage ports lie within the right, atri right atrium and the infusion port uh, lies uh, within the pulmonary artery. So if this device is used as, a, as an ECMO approach, uh, it, uh, it, it is very, very efficient because it eliminates recirculation. Uh, not only are the drainage and infusion ports uh, separated by distance, but they're also separated by two uh, valves. Uh, in addition, this device will provide right ventricular support for those patients who have associated right ventricular dysfunction. Uh, the challenge with this device uh, is, is its size and flow capacity. The maximum flow capacity uh, is about four, maybe a little bit more than four liters per minute. And for many of our patients who, who are obese, uh, it may not provide suitable support. So I think there is a role for it. Publications are certainly provocative, uh, suggesting an advantage, but whether this uh, applies to all patients with COVID, I think remains uncertain. Well, that's an excellent opinion, Dr. Hafton. If there were a 90 second soundbite that you would give the audience regarding what you think are the most important takeaway points from your experience in the COVID-19 pandemic, as far as ECMO is concerned, what would that be? Uh, so I, I, there, there are three things that, that I would um, stress that I, I feel are very important uh, uh, about ECMO for the treatment of COVID. Uh, number one is the patient selection. Uh, we, we have now a tremendous amount of clarity about the impact of age uh, on outcomes for patients with, with COVID, that each incremental uh, uh, decade uh, adds substantial mortality uh, to patients that, uh, that are treated with ECMO for COVID. Uh, now, that's not to say that older patients should always be excluded from ECMO, but age should be considered along with the other uh, patient level uh, variables, as well as your own resource uh, level uh, variables when you consider offering support to a patient uh, with, with COVID that may be of advanced age. Uh, the second point uh, is lung rest, that we have learned the importance of lung rest, the basic principle of venovenous ECMO for respiratory failure, uh, avoiding ventilator-induced lung injury appears to be as important with COVID as for other non-COVID forms of respiratory failure. And then the, the last point, uh, there is, uh, as we all know, an inverse relationship between the duration of ECMO support uh, and, and survival. That being said, there are a substantial number of patients that have survived despite uh, a very long period of time uh, that they were dependent upon ECMO long enough that may, would make you consider futility. So I think we have learned from COVID that it does require patience uh, when using ECMO uh, to treat this very ill population. Thanks, Dr. Hap. Those are very insightful and actually very topical pieces unto themselves, each one of them. I'm going to pivot to Bo for a second here. Dr. Kim, obesity is a well-documented risk factor in COVID in advanced settings, catapulting off Dr. Haft's opinion. Vent settings in this population are not straightforward. Now, you have a successful cardiovascular intensive care unit at Johns Hopkins. Now, would you kindly comment on the different approaches to vent parameters and specifically how you manage PEEP in the obese COVID-19 patient with a BMI greater than 40? Should we seek to provide optimal PEEP or shall we just turn off the vent and let the ECMO do the work? Thank you very much, Ori. Uh, thank you to the STS for having me. Uh, very interesting question. So morbid obesity with BMI greater than 40, 
these patients are, are rather challenging. They have a rather uh, uh, non-compliant uh, lung system that includes the chest wall. And so we believe, so our approach is a little bit different pre-cannulation and post-cannulation. So pre-cannulation, we would use higher PEEP. We would allow for higher plateau pressures, even up, up above 35, but we would still maintain uh, an important parameter, which is the driving pressure. And we believe that driving pressure of 15 or less uh, does improve survival. Uh, in patients with higher BMIs, we would also consider the use of a rescue mode ventilator when there was uh, refractory hypoxemia, uh, which is APRV, uh, which is another old topic unto itself. So I won't go into too much detail, um, but post cannulation, we really generally use pressure control 10, 10, and 10. And so pretty much the great majority of our patients are, are, are rested on a PEEP of 10, uh, despite what, whatever their BMI may be. Thank you very much, Dr. Kim. So in that response, you dichotomize your approach. And so it isn't one size fits all. And this goes along the same theme with the growing appreciation of the molecular phylogeny of COVID-19 and the emergence of two very distinct types of this virus with different features and different manifestations, which respond very differently to recruitment and to mechanical ventilation. The L-type, characterized by low elastance and low recruitability. How then should we approach this difference in the ability to recruit and the ability to maintain alveoli sanctity? So the, uh, the two types, the L-type and the H-type, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a controversial topic. It was first described in the early pandemic uh, by Dr. Gattanoni and he had actually advocated for higher tidal volumes for the L-type, the low elastance, low recruitability type. Um, but it, whether you believe that they're, they're actually distinct phenotypes, whether they're actually a continuum of the same disease or disease or the same phenotype, um, I would say that most of our patients, a great majority of our patients uh, are really the H-type, the low uh, compliance lungs and uh, high recruitability with a, with a good PEEP response. Now, if we were to see a patient with a true L-type, uh, then I would not advocate for higher tidal volumes, but I may turn toward a pulmonary vasodilator. Uh, mainly these patients have uh, greater amounts of physiologic dead space and VQ mismatch, and so the earlier use of a pulmonary vasodilator may offset uh, some of that VQ mismatch. Thank you very much, Dr. Kim. I'd like to pivot to our colleagues in Texas. Dr. Chatterjee, in your capacity on the front line in the great state of Texas, you have maintained a keen eye, no doubt, on infrastructure and capacity. Now, early in the pandemic, several ECMO centers in Pennsylvania, for example, banded together to agree upon candidacy indications and to coordinate a statewide response agreed upon ahead of time by the state's ECMO directors to stand united and unified protocols. Is this a model for the future? Shu, I think you're muted. Thank you, sorry, Ori. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, thank you to the STS uh, for the chance to participate. So I, I would say, I think the Pennsylvania model is very interesting um, and, and serves as a blueprint for uh, a pandemic level event. What we did in Houston at the Texas Medical Center is with uh, very early at the level of the pandemic um, with colleagues for, you know, we have three ECMO centers that each do 
between 120 and 150 ECMO runs a year uh, within uh, probably a four or five blocks of each other at the medical center. So the um, three ECMO directors, we got together and basically coordinated uh, very early on because the, the advantage of locally is that we're seeing the disease at the same time. We're seeing, you know, whatever the national reports or even statewide, we're tending to see it at the same time. So we were um, very early in terms of criteria, in terms of capacity. And as the pandemic has moved forward over the last 14, 15 months, we've continued to have that conversation. And, and I think that's been important because we we sort of were in this together. We started when we were very early in COVID. We didn't know what was going to come. We got to the point where we were in the pandemic together. And now we're we're almost in sort of a COVID endemic sort of state, at least for the for the near foreseeable future. That has been very helpful. And, and in, in respect, it's helped us with respect to how to um, perform uh, anticoagulation and, and how to, you know, as the criteria has sort of moved on. And all of us are all doing uh, lung transplants for COVID. And that has sort of bridged our uh, capacity as well. And I think if you go to, you know, the 90 seconds of what what we've sort of experienced and what I think the unique takeaway home point, uh, take home points might be, is I think that um, COVID ECMO has uh, taught us a unique appreciation of hypoxemia in the sense of how, how low are, are we willing to go and how much we can tolerate And You know, it used to be sort of the mid to high 80s, we'd put another cannula in. And then you I, talking to people around the country, all of a sudden 80%, 70 high 70s, you know, if the lactate's okay and like other biomarkers are okay, then people were, were doing okay. I think, so that was something that I think has sort of evolved as has anticoagulation. We started off very afraid of the thrombosis events. We tended to run our anticoagulation a little high. And over time, you really wanted to avoid bleeding complications. And so we have sort of gradually taken that threshold down and our targets down closer to uh, EOLIA level targets. That is a, a really excellent uh, segue really into the concept of the timeline and the dynamicity of the pandemic and the management therein. Many of us modified our approach to candidacy. And we hearken back to the Aeolia trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, which itself preferred somewhat of a challenge to ECMO enthusiasts. Now we have changed some of the Aeolia thresholds in clinical practice, bending them to greater survival. Despite that, survival to discharge by ELSO is really only in the 50% range. Now, Dr. Chatterjee, we have previously discussed novel means of addressing the cytokine storm and mitigating the inflammatory cascade. What other changes have you made in the management of COVID-19 patients on ECMO over the course of the past 12 months? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that when we first started with ECMO for COVID, I would say surge one, which probably went to about the summer of 2020, we saw 70, 75% survival. And we, we kind of gave ourselves a pat on the back. We thought we were doing okay. And then the second surge came, which was sort of through the fall, you know, of last year into the winter. And all of a sudden you're seeing 30, 30, 35% survival, like a dramatic reduction. And I think what's happened is we become more selective over time. I can clearly see that, you know, our overall ICU survival of COVID has improved, 
despite the fact that our ECMO numbers, mortality results aren't the same. So I think we're clearly doing better in the non-invasive ventilation aspect of that, but specifically with respect to cytosorb. So I, we personally have not used it um, within our other two like uh, affiliates at the uh, Texas Medical Center. Um, one has used it on about one or two cases. The other one did not. I'm not really sure whether we saw a cost benefit towards it. I think what cytosorb in that experience, so that is basically, you know, taking, uh, taking, try to address the cytokine storm. I think it'll be important to see what the trial results are and what to see what the real clinical benefits are. You know, COVID is not going to be around forever, but if hopefully at least, but I think that there are going to be lessons that can be learned from that. And if it is true that perhaps reduction of cytokines and like and mitigating the cytokine storm may have a beneficial role, then we may look to other applications. So you can think of, for example, profound vasoplegic shock during cardiopulmonary bypass, which is likely mitigated by a similar cytokine storm. So maybe there's a potential application for that in the future. So I think there are a lot of things that we'll learn from the COVID experience that will translate into ways that we can already anticipate and perhaps in ways we might not be able to anticipate quite yet. Excellent, Dr. Chatterjee, for that insight. Uh, we are grateful. I'd like to pivot to our digital moderator and bring him in as a panelist, Dr. Aurora. Hi. We have had a lot of controversy about the thrombogenic nature of COVID-19 and its effect on ECMO circuitry and what the optimal anticoagulation choice should be. Could you please share some insights about anticoagulation in COVID-19 and ECMO patients? Yeah, thanks. And this is a great question that I probably can pose back to the whole panel to get what people are doing as Robert um, Schultz has asked this in the Q&A panel, as well as what the anticoagulation strategies would be both in VV ECMO in general, and those with COVID-19, how you may have changed your strategy. And the concern that we've heard from several centers is the risk of thrombosis due to this vigorous inflammatory cascade that Shuba just spoke of that's leading to higher rates of thrombosis and oxygenator failure. Our approach has been standard heparin, that being said, we're not using uh, direct thrombin inhibitors as our first line therapy. And uh, in the absence of having any, any new clot formation oxygenators, that has maintained our current line of, of anticoagulation up front. If there are issues or ongoing signs of thrombosis or heparin failure or worse heparin induced thrombocytopenia, then we would pivot towards Bob Valrudin. But I'd be interested in the other panel members to uh, Dr. Schultz's question of how you've been managing anticoagulation. Bo? Yeah, so, um, you know, our program, and I don't know if this is uh, just unique to us or not, but we've had, we've had a, a number of bleeding complications that has become really uh, common amongst all of our COVID ECMO patients. We, we start out using heparin as a full anticoagulation strategy, but we're often pivoting toward just using sub-Q heparin as a DBT prophylaxis but then even having to stop that uh, because of ongoing bleeding, usually in the oropharynx and nasopharynx and then from trach sites, uh, we are seeing a lot of bleeding. Uh, we do have probably a little bit more use of uh, the dual lumen cannula in the right IJ and whether that uh, increases your venous congestion in the head and neck area, it, it's, an, it's a interesting question and we're looking into it, but uh, that may be uh, part of the problem. Jonathan. Uh, thank you. Our, our, our program uh, still relies on traditional heparin for anticoagulation. Uh, we typically follow the anti-10A levels, uh, usually 0.3 to 0.5, uh, and uh, only use direct thrombin inhibitors. 
for patients that have uh, suspected HIT. That being said, I, I do think that there is a, a role for direct thrombin inhibitors. Uh, certainly our experience with them has been quite favorable, but, but as you know, there is a substantial cost associated with those, uh, those drugs. Thank you. Rita? Sorry. So uh, we do utilize uh, heparin. Uh, we start out with heparin. However, if there are any issues with the heparin, any type of heparin resistance, or we can't come to a therapeutic PTT, or if there are any other issues with uh, thrombosis of the oxygenator, then we will go to bivalrudin. Or if the patient was candulated outside and was already on bivalrudin, we just leave them on bivalrudin. However, having said that, if they are on bivalrudin and they have any bleeding complications, such as a, a severe GI bleed or severe oropharyngeal bleeding, um, we will switch back to heparin if there is no contraindication so that we can reverse it uh, momentarily or for a procedure, uh, a, a trach, uh, an endoscopy uh, to be able to deal with the patient better. Thank you, Rita. Shuba. Oh, I have one more question here from the audience, perhaps after Shuba's response about sure. Doranase Alpha and any experience with that in COVID-19 patients. Sure, Shuba. So we, we um, uh, most of the patients that are already on heparin, we will initially keep them on heparin. Um, we have a very low threshold to switch to bivalorudin. Some patients we place primarily on bivalorudin, um, you know, in terms of that, our PTT, we, we use uh, both PTT and um, the R time on the TEG for concordance with respect to heparin monitoring. Um, and then we also use the anti-10A uh, as a, as a check as well, but we are also moving more towards bivalent. Great. Thanks, Juba. Dr. Aurora, you have a question. Yeah, sorry. Just going back to the Doranase Alpha in COVID-19 patients, any experience with any of the panel members on that? Bo? No, I, we, we have not used it uh, at all for uh, any of our COVID patients. We have used it in our lung transplant patients on occasion and certainly for CF, but, but not for COVID. Jonathan? No, we, we, we don't. And, and, and frankly, we found that uh, the COVID patients, you don't have these sort of tenacious secretions uh, unless they have a terrible super infection. But, but most of these, these viral patients, the, the, uh, the secretions are, are really quite thin and watery. And so I, I, I don't personally have any experience doing it. Uh, and, and I don't think we have a huge role for it in this particular disease. Rita? No, we don't have any experience. Shuba? Rita, you play an instrument, instrumental role um, in cardiothoracic care and perfusion at Yale. Now you spearheaded the ongoing ELSO SDS ECMO survey. Now how do you reconcile the difficulty in interpreting recently published data about a pandemic that is itself in evolution in which there's no adjustment made for the varying trends in pharmacologic treatment. Convalescent plasma came and went. Remdesivir started strong and then plateaued. Steroids started weakly, then blossomed. How can we best interpret the data in the face of such erratic trends? Well, I, I think that that is an excellent, it's, it's a very important and it's a very relevant question. Over the past 12 months, the 
uh, therapeutic modalities and options for COVID-19 have really been evolving from anywhere from uh, last spring symptomatic therapy to antivirals and now to vaccinations. So in interpreting the data from our own patients at our own institutions and then the data from studies, uh, we're actually going to have to look toward, I believe, a sub-analysis of these patients to interpret the results from the therapeutic uh, modalities and to identify either uh, viable single or multi-modality uh, therapy strategies going forward with COVID. Excellent approach, and, Dr. Muskie. And if I could just go ahead and uh, give my 90-second interpretation of the pandemic. So I, I think I speak toward uh, what Jonathan said as far as patient selection, which I think is extremely important and what I've learned from this pandemic. But at the bedside and, and looking at the other organ systems, I think one of the things that I've really learned from this pandemic and going forward uh, was one of the uh, thought processes behind the STS ELSO, uh, STS and ELSO uh, survey was the follow-up in these patients. We really don't know uh, what the patient sequelae is gonna be and what the optimal long-term therapy is gonna be for these patients. So I'm sure at other institutions and here at Yale, we've uh, uh, put together a multi-modality uh, follow-up uh, clinic for these patients, including the three major organ systems, the pulmonary system, the cardiac system, and the neurosystem so that we can follow these patients and determine uh, which one of these patients are, are going to need in the long-term lung transplants, which one of them will have permanent arrhythmias. And in the neurologic state, you know, uh, how bad is uh, the neurologic outcomes from these patients? Um, uh, will this recover? How long will it take to recover? And are there any therapies that can help them to recover? So I think follow-up is going to be extremely important in these patients. That is an excellent point, Rita, particularly in the context of the long COVID syndrome and the long-term sequelae of a virus whose life cycle we're still trying to elucidate. I'd like to pivot to the two uh, institutions that are currently practicing lung transplantation in COVID-19 patients and get their response uh, in terms of a 90-second um, overview of what the take-home message is. Dr. Kim, I'm going to start with you in terms of what is your take-home message in the ECMO COVID context? So in general, my general message would be that we are in the biggest health crisis of our lifetimes. And I have to say personally that the COVID ECMO ARDS patient is really the most challenging BV ECMO patient that we've ever had to manage. And, and in the face of this, this COVID fatigue era, I will say to all the ECMO providers out there that we must persevere and we must find those patients that we can, we can actually save. Of course, this touches upon the patient selection um, that, uh, that Jonathan and Rita has, have mentioned, but uh, I think uh, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for a more stringent selection criteria, but maybe more of a nuanced one that, uh, that will still be able to find the patients that will most benefit from ECMO. Sarah, we will hearken that message. Shuba, can you tell us your philosophical overview about this COVID-19 and its uh, impact on ECMO? So I think, um, 
I think to sort of build on um, what Bo had just said, which is that, you know, um, without transplant as a viable option, it is really difficult to have somebody who's on ECMO, um, you know, who's 30 years old, two months, three months, four months, and, you know, without really an end in sight. And so I think we've done five lung transplants. I think the TMC done is, has done 15. To be able to give hope to not just, you know, the these patients and their families, but also to the community as a whole and, and maybe to the to the field that there is a an out. There is a there is a Hail Mary that can be successful. I think it's valuable. I think it's also sometimes we underestimate the the impact that COVID has had on the morale of the healthcare system, especially the frontline nurses, you know, who take care of these patients hour after hour and and so often, especially in sec in the second surge, saw like repeated bad outcome and bad outcome and, and difficult situations. There is nothing more uplifting um, th for an entire healthcare team, especially the nurses, to be able to see somebody successfully being bridged to transplant and and walking out and, and making progress. So I, I think that this is, you know, to a certain extent, this is the the crisis of our lifetimes, as Bo had said. And, and we just have to meet the opportunity and, 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 you know, as best we can, you know, you can't save everybody. You just have to do your best for the patient in front of you. Wonderful sentiments. In the context of this more broader public health aspect to this pandemic, I'd like to pivot to Dr. Aurora. Rakesh, vaccination, it's topical, yet often controversial, particularly in the context of COVID-19, the mRNA vaccines, the adenovirus vaccines. What would you recommend to ECMO programs in terms of timing of vaccination after COVID-19 illness? And even beyond that, the timing as it affects patients undergoing elective surgery. Yeah, so as you say, really topical question. And I will give credit to Helen Marie Merritt, who's not on the call tonight as she's been called away uh, to do a, an emergency procedure. And she has been leading this initiative through the workforces of critical care with collaborators from uh, thoracics and adult cardiac surgery to put together a guided statement that's gonna be coming out, I'm hopefully very soon. I'll give you a sneak peek in some of the content that we've discussed on this issue. So starting first around vaccination prior to non-emergent surgery. In general, there is probably a benefit to provide full vaccination prior to surgery with at least two weeks after completion of the vaccine series to get the best benefit. If it's not possible to delay surgery to get both vaccines, or if you're in a country such as we are in Canada where uh, double vaccines or do two doses of vaccine has not been ubiquitously um, been able to be given out to patients or older adults, that trying one vaccine or getting one dose as early as possible prior to surgery and at least two weeks prior to is what we're recommending. The bigger question is when you have someone that comes in that has not had been vaccinated and has had surgery, about what you do prior to discharge. And where this has been a bit more controversial and perhaps less data-driven, primarily because of the potential side effects of the vaccine with regards to fever and myalgia and others that may be confused with symptoms of infection in the post-operative period. It's also unclear after a significant inflammatory type uh, uh, procedure that involves cardiopulmonary bypass of the effectiveness of that vaccine. So for that, it's less clear about the timing of vaccination following, car following cardiac surgery. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Aurora. Why don't we still stick with you and take some questions from the yeah. chat? 
So I'm going to I'm pivoting back a little bit. Tom McGilvery's asked a great question related to survival. So his question is: Several registries and reports suggest that COVID ECMO survival rates have decreased over time. Why do you think this is the case, Dr. Haft? Why don't we pivot to you? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, it, it, we don't know the answer to it. it. Certainly, some of it may be uh, changes in patient selection. So, uh, in the spring of last year. Uh, when um, the initial report suggested that ECMO was not going to be efficacious uh, out of the early experience in Asia and Europe, uh, centers were very, very selective about who they would offer ECMO uh, for. In addition, most of our uh, medical centers were inundated with COVID patients and completely shut down all non-COVID related uh, operations. And, and so uh, we had limited capacity to be able to offer uh, um, any treatment, whether ECMO or even mechanical ventilation. Uh, and so again, we were very, very selective. Uh, as the second wave uh, came along and we had very positive experiences, uh, the ELSA registry at that time had nearly 60% uh, uh, survival. Uh, uh, and certainly many single centers were reporting survival uh, close to 80%. Uh, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. And the second wave was not quite as as uh, robust, there wasn't uh, the same volume of patients in our hospitals, uh, and so we had more capacity. And so centers, I think, were expanding their criteria, uh, uh, initiating ECMO for older patients, and initiating ECMO for patients with substantial comorbidities, uh, and initiating ECMO for patients who had uh, 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 failed respiratory support for longer periods of time. So either mechanical ventilation for more than a week or uh, uh, other forms of respiratory support, heated high flow or non-invasive ventilation for prolonged periods of time. Our experience in the second wave was really very, very poor. Uh, and we think the main reason was, was patient selection for many of the factors I described above. Excellent insight. Thank you, Dr. Haft. Shuba, there is a question from Rizwan Manji about transplantation. What is the timing for transplantation? When is it done? Weeks after general recovery from the acute illness, how do you make that timing happen? Sure, uh, I think it's a great question. So in general, um, number one, this underscores the importance of multidisciplinary and really multi-specialty uh, collaboration. So both with um, uh, lung transplant physicians, critical care, ECMO intensivists, and, and everyone else. I think the key is certainly past the acute, you know, say the first month or so, we tend to give people at least two to three months to really get an opportunity to really recover. Um, prior to transplant, our general criteria for general lung transplant, our bridge from ECMO to lung transplant was you had to be able to walk around the entire unit, which would be 150 square feet. And then it sort of got to, well, you have to be able to walk halfway down the hall. Then it, then it sort of got pushed to, okay, you know, you have to be able to be able to walk out to the room. So we have sort of pushed a little bit in terms of that, and some of it is based a little bit on, you know, some of our previous um, candidates uh, were cystic fibrosis patients who get bridged. These candidates are by and large patients in their 30s, you know, to early 40s. They're single organ dysfunction. Um, they've been in bed for a long time. We certainly do our best. We'd like to see them do as much physical therapy uh, as much as possible. But I would say the, the short answer is, it's typically somewhere between three to four months uh, uh, after the acute illness. Excellent. I think Dr. Aurora has a question from the chat. Yes, I've got a couple of questions. There's one from uh, Dr. Darwish and from an Angela Minoski around tracheostomy. 
So what is your timing and strategy in terms of technique for tracheostomy and patients on ECMO with COVID-19? And how have you dealt with the bleeding complications or mitigating the bleeding complications that may be associated with tracheostomy in these patients? Rita, will you take that? Yes. So it's usually right around the two-week period, and it's a percutaneous trach, uh, usually at the bedside. Um, obviously, we can get some bleeding, and in those instances, that may be one of the issues in which we have to switch from a bivalve root into a heparin or uh, uh, temporarily uh, lower our PTT goal. Um, but it's uh, right around the two-week period. Shuba, would this be your response as well? Um, I would say um, I will. Uh, I would say our, our policy is typically more along the line of, of Rita's, but I'd like to turn to the moderator, Dr. Awari. Uh, you have a slightly different opinion on tracheostomy. What are, what are your thoughts? So we approach tracheostomy as something that should be done early because we believe that the quicker we liberate the patient from the vent, the better. The effect of sedation and paralysis are, I think, not good. And critical illness polyneuropathy is not something we want to add to the burden of COVID-19. So we typically either extubate the patient or perform the tracheostomy within 72 hours of being on ECMO. And we do this percutaneously because of the positive pressure, negative pressure paradigm and the, the, the desire to decrease the exposure. But enough about me, let's talk to Dr. Haft. <laughs> Uh, so I, I would echo uh, that philosophy. I think patients are probably better off with earlier tracheostomy uh, for the reasons you, you, you described. In the early wave, I think there was reluctance to perform tracheostomy because of the exposure to, uh, to healthcare workers, but we have certainly learned that with uh, uh, proper use of PPE, uh, that uh, risk to, to healthcare workers uh, in COVID units uh, is, is uh, I think, re reasonably well-managed. Uh, and so we are now doing tracheostomies earlier. Um, it, it tends to be provider specific. Some of us do them percutaneously and some, some do them open and, and bleeding is inevitable with, with any ECMO patient. Bleeding uh, can happen from any surgical wound or even non-surgical wounds. Uh, and, and when they bleed, we, we stop the heparin. We adopt the same principle. Dr. Merritt has joined us from uh, the emergency case in which she was called. We welcome you, Helen Marie. Um, why not give us your opinion about tracheostomy and timing? Yeah, hi, thanks everybody. Um, so we, we also adopt an early tracheostomy strategy. Um, even sometimes the, the next day, uh, as you mentioned, Ori, within 72 hours is typically our goal once the patient is stabilized and we're able to decrease some of the ventilator requirements and lean on our ECMO circuit a little bit more. Um, regarding bleeding, I completely agree with the other panelists that it's inevitable uh, when, when uh, anticoagulation is required. Uh, we try to do a percutaneous approach if at all possible, uh, but obviously sometimes the body habitus doesn't lend itself to a percutaneous approach. Thank you, Dr. Merritt. Rakesh has another question from the chat. Yeah, a couple of maybe rapid fire ones here to kind of go along the same theme. Um, this is maybe for Bo, I'll put this one to you. Do your patients become younger? Have you noticed that in the second and now into the third surge? And maybe for the old panel, the average age of patients in your unit? So the patients may have gotten just slightly younger, but not, not by much. And I have to say that as far as age criteria, we didn't really change our selection uh, from the first surge to the second. Uh, we still want uh, everyone to be less than 60, but certainly we haven't made it any younger than that. 
Um, so we've still gotten several, fair, fair number of patients in the 50 to 60 range and the 40 to 50 range. Um, but they do present differently. And I think we touched upon that um, a moment ago. Uh, they do have a much more uh, prolonged period of stability prior to getting intubated and whether that's due to the common practice of dexamethasone and remdesivir, it's a little bit unclear. It's probably multifactorial, um, but just a slight uh, decrease in age, but not, not uh, significant. Shruba? Um, I would say probably we, we have seen a little bit of a slight decrease in age over time, um, you know, in, in terms of that. And I think that could be attributed to, I agree, a number of different things, you know, in terms of that. And just, I think, to build on what um, the, the question that was earlier posed about where the outcomes may be different, you know, I think in the first surge, there was definitely a tendency towards earlier intubation and um, before patients had gotten steroids and things like that. And so there were a fair number of people that went on ECMO much earlier in their um, total COVID hospital course. Whereas I think as time went on with the success of non-invasive ventilation, steroids and whatnot, those fewer patients that wound up intubated and came to ECMO, I think were a sicker cohort overall. Rita? Rita, I think you're muted. Sorry. Our uh, patient population currently is slightly younger than it had been in the first or second wave. Our patient population right now, I would say, is probably right around 50, where it had been in the 60 range before. Um, patient selection criteria has not changed. It's just a younger population. And especially in the spring, um, it could possibly be due to the fact that the older population has had the opportunity to be vaccinated. Excellent. Jonathan? Uh, in, in Michigan, we have seen a substantial change in the, uh, in the age of our patients. And some of that is, is by design that, that we have reduced our age criteria, uh, except under unusual circumstances. Uh, but now the majority of our patients that we're supporting on ECMO are in their 20s and 30s uh, and all, um, all obese. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, there was, there's been a lot of obesity. There's clearly a link between uh, COVID severity and obesity. Uh, but but uh, now we're seeing younger and, and more obese patients in, in so the state of Michigan. So true, so true. Dr. Merritt. Yeah, I think a uh, second wave has certainly uh, produced more patients in the younger cohorts that seem to be uh, more ill. And so that tends to be the patients that we're supporting as we uh, deal with resource utilization and get more streamlined in our decision-making process for that. Thank you. You know, now that we have your attention and we don't know how long you're going to be here, Helen Marie, we acknowledged your contribution at the forefront of the SDS's workforce and the realms of COVID and ECMO. We talked a bit about vaccination and we quoted your upcoming paper. There are many who affirm that patients with COVID-19 should be sedated and paralyzed. And this is part of the referral pattern that we see prior to ECMO. Now, in the context of this webinar, our title, our headliner was sedate or cannulate. Uh, we wanted to get your opinion from the people of Omaha. Yeah, so I think um, one thing, a silver lining that the pandemic has brought us is the ability to um, 
be very creative with our strategies. So I think the first wave, all of us were aggressively using and leaning on other strategies rather than ECMO. Um, and that was in part because the capacity of the hospital was full and because um, you know the initial reports that were smaller case series coming out with one to 10 patients showed that the, the outcomes were not very good for ECMO and COVID patients. And so we leaned on things like pulmonary vasodilators, different modalities of ventilation, um, esophageal manometry, increased PEEP, et cetera. Um, Dr. Dr. Awari and I just did an eight and eight series on this. We just recorded it Tuesday and talking about some of those other strategies. So I think as we learned from our ECMO experience, a lot of us have seen that the longer that a patient is ventilated before going on ECMO, the harder it seems to be to let that sedation wear off. And we do deal with some of those other ICU issues like polyneuropathy, and, and letting those extreme doses of um, sedation and, and opiates wear off. And I think another unknown is how those, those different medications um, are cleared when a patient's on ECMO and may or may not be on CRRT or other forms of cytokine removal. So we tend to be a, an early cannulator in other words. We, that we endorse that message. I turn to Dr. Aurora now for the chat. Yeah, so we got a ton of great questions coming in. I'm gonna to try to lump a couple of these together. One from uh, Asme Gassa and Holly Muhort. Uh, do you treat patients with VB ECMO while awake? And what are your experiences? And combined with that, we'll say, how do you prioritize then? Weaning ECMO support and decannulation or weaning vent support and extubating while on ECMO? So what's, what's, the, what's the modality of how you prioritize your manager of these patients with regards to sedation? And then what do you do next, vent or ECMO first? Dr. Haft, what's the University of Michigan response to that? I, I think we would endorse an approach of trying to keep patients as awake and interactive as possible, uh, try to take advantage of negative pressure breathing. I think there are multiple uh, reasons that could be, uh, uh, you know, superior than sedating patients. Uh, it, it reduces the likelihood of ventilator-induced lung injury, uh, keeps the patient strong. So when they are ready to wean from the ventilator, they, uh, uh, they are, they're, they're uh, more quickly able to reach that goal. Um, the challenge in some of these COVID patients is uh, their body mass index is quite high. Their oxygen consumption uh, and metabolism uh, is quite high. And in many cases, we, we struggle to support them. Uh, despite five, six liters of flow, uh, you're dealing with substantial residual cyanosis. Uh, and uh, allowing patients to be awake and increasing their oxygen consumption uh, can sometimes be challenging. So we do it when we can, but, but in many cases, uh, we find we, we have to keep today to just to, uh, and in fact, some cases even uh, induce hypothermia uh, to try to reduce metabolic demand and, and provide uh, adequate support. Thank you. Oh, is that the Hopkins way? So uh, I'm, I marvel at your ability, Awari, to uh, extubate these patients and Shuba, your ability to uh, walk these patients, uh, because we often find that we are having a lot of trouble weaning patients off sedation, uh, you know, they have a tremendous amount of respiratory drive, even if you correct their pH to a perfect 7.40, uh, and they have, uh, you know, optimized gas exchange, uh, they're still tachypnic and they're still pulling on their lungs. And when their lungs are poorly compliant, you know, we, we do worry about patient-induced lung injury, not, on, not only ventilator-induced lung injury. Um, so we do see uh, a lot of work of breathing and tachypnia that we do not have the ability to control very well. And so uh, we're often limited to our ability to come off sedation. And sometimes we're going back on neuromuscular blockade, which is not ideal. And 
and we uh, we frequently try to wean them off sedation, wean them off neuromuscular blockade, and and we do that you know kind of in a daily waking trial, uh, you know, paradigm. But uh, we're not usually successful. Understood, Rita. Um, I would have to uh, uh, mirror that answer where it, we have to walk that fine line between the patient having, uh, it, when we decrease the sedation, although we try to decrease the sedation as much as we can with every single patient and at least get a neural status every single day, um, we do struggle with the tachypnea, the uh, respiratory drive, as well as the hyperdynamic uh, uh, system where uh, the increased oxygen consumption, we, uh, we have to deal with that as well. So it's a, a, a more or less a double-edged sword. We want to get the sedation down. We want to keep them as interactive as we can, but then again, have the battle of respiratory drive and, and a hypermetabolic state. Thank you. Helen Marie? I think once you get into that vicious cycle of having the patient on a lot of sedation, it is just really difficult to dismount. I totally agree. We run into the same problems of the patient is, uh, you know, shouldn't have so much air hunger, but they do. Um, in terms of answering the second part of the question, Rakesh worry, I would say uh, we tend to wean down the mechanical uh, ventilatory support before we wean down the, the ECMO circuit. And so that has typically been our strategy is to either try to extubate the patient or get them to minimal vet settings on the, the trach before we decannulate. We endorse that message too. Uh, Shuba. I would say, I mean, I think that we all experience similar like setbacks. I think the one thing that um, that's taken a little bit of a cultural shift is that I think you have to be there, you know, when you watch someone, when you take the sedation off, because it at first the sedation would come off and the patients would have saturation levels of 82%. And then just like standard training, you know, they'd get resedated and you'd come back and you'd say, you know, what happened? They said, well, their sats dropped to 80%. So we had to resedate them. And then over time, you try to just say, well, let's just tolerate it at 80% and see what happens. And I think that has sort of, and like, you know, I think on some of our more successful cases, being able to tolerate that has, has, has shifted. But certainly I think there, there are cases that are just setbacks that are that are frustrating, but I think there, it, it's changed our paradigm a little bit of how low we can go and what we'll tolerate. So true, so true. Dr. Aurora, we have questions from the chat. We do, a couple here, one from a Dr. Darwish again and Nitin Gurpati about proning your patients whilst on ECMO. Rita, would you prone on ECMO? We have uh, on a couple of occasions during the second surge, we did prone. Uh, we haven't dur during this last uh, uh, ECMO uh, set of patients, but uh, in the fall, we were proning our patients. There were about four or five of them that we did prone. Got it. Oh, would you prone on ECMO? So uh, we um, house our patients in the cardiovascular surgical ICU, and I would say that as a unit, we're not a proning expert unit. Uh, we generally do not prone our ECMO patients, but we, do, we have done it once and it didn't seem to really uh, make any difference. I think the time is really important, whether you do it at the time of cannulation, when the lungs may, be, may still require some protection, or maybe doing, doing it while they're weaning off the ECMO may be also more efficacious, but certainly not doing when the lungs are really atelectatic. Understood. Shuba. No, I mean, no, we, uh, our COVID unit became, I think, um, you know, at a time there was a very high efficiency with 
pronine prior to ECMO, but we have not typically done that, uh, you know. In the interest of time, and as we get into our last 10 minutes, Dr. Aurora, we have more questions from the chat. Let's see how many we can We do. do. I think this is a really good one as well. They're all good ones, but like this one in particular. Uh, we've seen a 97% increase. This is from Jenny, Je Jennifer Garcia in her ECMO days secondary to COVID. With, given the sudden unexpected increase in demand, have you discovered or created any unique staffing solutions for ECMO units and patient care? Dr. Haft, with your ELSO hat, could we do a call upon your expertise here? So let, let me understand the question. Uh, the, the, the question was stopping ECMO for futility or stopping other services uh, so that you can uh, meet the, the demand for COVID. I guess that's, that's uh, they're, they're both difficult questions. So the futility right. question, uh, I, 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 um, I would say it's very difficult to judge when it is futile. And we, we have not uh, adopted the lung transplant uh, strategy for the COVID population. I think largely because most of our patients are, are, are um, uh, outside the BMI range for uh, suitability for lung transplant. But but we have really pushed for, for recovery and, and have been um, pleasantly surprised with the ability of young lungs uh, to recover with, with appropriate rest and time. Uh, as far as, um, you know, balancing non-COVID care, you know, in the first wave, uh, we, we halted all non-COVID services uh, with, with the you know, exception of emergencies only uh, at the University of Michigan. And this is in the spring of, of 2020. Uh, and what, what we learned was that there was a substantial increase in non-COVID related mortality, cardiovascular mortality, uh, oncologic mortality, and other things. And so as an institution, we made a commitment to uh, continue to provide services for non-COVID care. And it's been a very delicate balancing act uh, to determine uh, uh, how much of a commitment we were going to make to, to COVID. Uh, so we have a substantial number of COVID patients in this third wave uh, in our hospital, in our ICUs, and on our ECMO circuits. Uh, but the, the requests continue to come in. And, and these, are, these are challenges that, that are... Um, that are being faced uh, at our institution at the highest levels. No doubt, a balancing act it is. Dr. Maluski at Yale, what is the approach to futility? Well, we have a multidisciplinary team that meets once a week. And that team includes uh, the cardiac surgeons, the intensivists, uh, ethics committee, and uh, social services, family services, and we discuss the patients and you know how long they have been on ECMO, what their uh, recovery is, and based on that, we uh, we decide on you know going forward or if we think that it is a futile futile at that point. But it is a multidisciplinary approach. Shuba, how long is too long? I guess is one of the questions that we've asked in the past. It's a, it's a good question. It's a very difficult question to answer. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I, will, I will say that, you know, what one of the things that we instituted uh, relatively early on, taking advantage of the Zoom platform, is we meet in a similar multidisciplinary way, but we've included families. And so once a week, the um, ECMO intensivists, nurses meet with families, team members from ethics and palliative care. We routinely consult palliative care. And what we have sort of provided is we try to discuss um, metrics of either progress or whether things are getting worse. And so, 
you know, initially when we first started, we were saying that about four weeks or so, you know, and if we don't see meaningful improvement in four weeks, then we're probably coming to the end of the road. We probably push that now more to closer to like two months or so, you know, typically, you know, you, you want to say six to eight weeks is sort of the, what we say now, but what it has facilitated is families then don't see that it's coming out of the blue, that we're talking about once a week, you know, this is the progress that we've made, here is where we have not. Um, and, you know, the other thing I think that's changed is lung transplant as a, as a possibility. So within about two months or so, if we don't, if the lung transplant um, uh, physicians have said they are not a candidate for whatever reason, and then we get to a point where it's about two to three, you know, you know two to three months, then that really begs the question of futility. Some families are easier to, you know, have thought about it more and I think are a little bit more accepting. And some are a little bit more of a challenge and, and it, it's harder. And, and, you know, I think we've had, we've our, our longest, um, you know, we've supported people as long as five months with uh, four months with recovery and five months with transplant. So, you know, I think that's, so the short answer is that it's hard to say, but. Yeah, wise words. Bo, how long is too long? So that's really uh, kind of a moving target and uh, really hard to determine because I think the second wave have taught us that uh, some of the patients do recover even after a very prolonged period of time. You know, we've had recovery after two months. Uh, and, and like Shuba was saying, uh, initially in the first surge after 30 days, we were really thinking futility of care. But now, you know, if it's single organ failure, we are almost at an indefinite time clock. Um, now, having said that, we do talk to families every day. We do have palliative care on every patient. And we do want to, right from the beginning of consent for ECMO, talk about, okay, this is you know, a 50-50 proposition and we may uh, every week tell you how things are going and if things are not going the way they should, after 30 days, we'll, we'll think about stopping. Um, but of course, that is, a, that is not really uh, understood deeply by, by patients' families at the time of, of crisis and at the time of cannulation. And so, uh, these weekly meetings with the entire family and daily conversations really do have to incorporate the possibility that the patient is not going to survive. On that note, we are at the end of our time. I'd like to thank my distinguished panelists for sharing their expertise with us on this evening and on this webinar on COVID-19 and its impact on ECMO. We are grateful for this. And to close with Bo and Shuba's statement, this has been the greatest medical challenge of our lifetime. Thank you all and good night. Thank you, Dr. Hyenga, and thank you to all our panelists today for your participation and insight. STS and ELSA are conducting an important survey to learn how COVID has changed ECMO practice. If you work in an adult ECMO center in the US or Canada and have not received a link to the survey but would like to participate, please contact support at elso.org. Use STS slash ELSO survey in the subject line. Please join us for the next webinar in this series titled The Resilient Surgeon, Strategies to Be Your Best Self in and Out of the OR, no matter what, no matter what, on Thursday, May 20th at seven o'clock PM Eastern time. Delve into the extraordinary content from STS 2021 with annual meeting online and get 360 degree views while luminary surgeons operate with immersive video experiences. Each product can be purchased individually or you can buy them together at a special bundled rate. STS members save even more. 
Learn more at stsorg amoimmersives. Thank you and have a great night.